Escape Pod 338. March 29, 2012. The Trojan Girl, by N.K. Jemison. Hello and welcome to Escape Pod, your weekly science fiction podcast. I'm Norm Sherman. We've got a fierce cybergoth story for you this week about pack mentality and a future set inside the intertubes. Geeks are sure to love it. We bring you The Trojan Girl by N.K. Jemison. N.K. Jemison's short fiction has previously appeared on Escape Pod, Podcastle, Clark's World, Postscripts, and a variety of other markets. Her novel, The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, was a Nebula nominee, and her novel, The Broken Kingdoms, was a Romantic Times Award winner. Both are out now from Orbit Books. The Trojan Girl first appeared in the January 2011 issue of Weird Tales. Stories read to you by Escape Pod Editor-in-Chief and resident Skyrim addict, Mer Lafferty. So listen up, pups. The hunt is on, and it's story time. The Trojan Girl by N.K. Jemison. In the Amorph, there were wolves. That was the name Marrow used, because it was how he thought of himself. Amid the scraggling tree structures and fetid heaps, he could run swift and silent, alert to every shift of the input plane. He and his pack hunted sometimes, camouflaging themselves amid junk objects in order to stalk the lesser creatures that hid there, though this was hardly a challenge. Few of these creatures had the sophistication to do more than flail pathetically when Marrow caught them, and tore them apart and swallowed their few useful features into himself. He enjoyed the brief victories, anyhow. The warehouse loading door shut with a groan of rusty chains and badly maintained motors. Marrow sat down the carton he'd been carrying with a relieved sigh, hearing Neverwind do the same behind him. Zoe and the other members of the pack came forward to assist. "'What did you get?' she asked. Her current body was broad-shouldered and muscular, sluggish but strong. Marrow let her carry the biggest carton. "'The usual,' he said. "'Canned fatty protein, green vegetables, enough to last us a few months. Breakfast cereal for carbs. It was cheap.' "'Any antibiotics?' asked Diggs, coughing after the words. The cough was wet and ragged. She carried the smallest box and looked tired after she set it down. "'No.' They wanted something called a prescription, added Never. He shrugged. If we'd known ahead of time, we could have fabbed or fished one. Too many people around for a clean pirate. Oh, thanks. Thanks a bunch. Do you know how long it took to get this damn thing configured the way I like it? Marrow shrugged. We'll find you a new one. Quit whining. Diggs muttered some imprecation, but kept it under her breath, so Marrow let it slide. That was when he noticed the odd tension in the warehouse. Zoe was serene as ever, but Marrow knew her. She was excited about something. The others were expressions of... what? Marrow had never been good at reading faces. He thought it might be anticipation. "'What's happened?' he asked. Diggs, the newbie, opened her mouth. Faster, the veteran, elbowed her. Zoe eyed them both for a long, morning moment before finally answering. We've found something you should see, she said. In the Amorph, there was danger, an endless primordial variety. Far and beyond the threat of their fellow wolves, 
Marrow and his pack had to contend with parasitic worms, beasts that tunneled to devour them from below, spike bursts, and worse. For the amorph was itself the threat, transforming constantly as information poured into it and mingled and sparked, changing and being changed. Worse were the singularities, which appeared whenever some incident drew the attention of the clogs and the news burps and the intimate nets. These would focus all of their formidable attention on a single point, and every nearby element of the amorph would be dragged toward that point as well. The result was a whirlpool of concatenation so powerful that to be drawn in was to be strung apart and recompiled and then scattered among a million servers and a billion access points and a quadrillion devices and brains. Not even the strongest wolves could survive this, so Marrow and his pack learned the signs. They kept lookouts. Whenever they scented certain kinds of information on the wind, controversies, scandals, crises, they fled. In his youth, Marrow had lived in terror of such events, which seemed to strike with no pattern or reason. Then he had grown older and understood. The amorph was not the whole world. It was his world, the one he had been born in and adapted to. But another world existed alongside it, the static. He learned quickly to hate this other world. The beings within it were soft and bizarrely limited and useless individually. Collectively, they were gods, the creators of the singularities and the amorph, and, tangentially, Marrow and his kind. And so underneath Marrow's contempt lurked fear. Underneath that lurked reverence. He never looked very deeply inside himself, however, so the contempt remained the foremost in his heart. Faster was more than the veteran. He was also the pack's aggregator. They all entered the amorph, where he had built a local emulation of the warehouse, a convenience as this kept them from having to unpack too quickly after upload. There, Faster showed his masterpiece, their quarry, cobbled together from resource measurements and environmental feedback. It even included an image capture of her current avatar. She appeared as a child of seven, maybe eight years old, black-haired, huge-eyed, dressed in a plain T-shirt and jeans. Faster had rendered her in mid-flight, arms and leg lifted in the opening movements of running. He had always had a taste of melodrama. I'm guessing she's brand new, Faster said. He, Zoe, and Never stood by as Moreau paced a circle around the girl. Never's eyes had a half-glazed look. Part of him was keeping watch outside the emulation. Her structure is incredibly simple. A basic engine, a few feature objects, some maintenance scripts... Merrill glanced at him. Then why should we be interested? Look deeper. But obliged by switching to code view. Then, only then, did he understand. The girl was perfect. Her framing, the engine at her core, the intricate web of connections holding her objects together, built-in redundancies. Merrill had never seen such efficiency. The girl's structure was simple because she didn't need any of the shortcuts and workarounds that most of their kind required to function. There was no bloat to her, no junk code slowing her down, no patchy sores that left her vulnerable to infection. She's a thing of beauty, isn't she? Faster said. Mero returned to interface view. He glanced at Zoe and saw the same suspicion lurking in her beatific expression. I've never seen anything like this, Mero said, watching Zoe, speaking to Faster. We don't grow that way. I know! Faster was pacing, gesticulating, caught up in his own excitement. He didn't notice Moreau's look. She must have evolved from something professionally coded, maybe even government standard. 
I didn't think we could be born from that. They couldn't. Mero stared at the girl, not liking what he was seeing. The avatar was just too well-designed, too detailed. Her features and coloring matched that of some variety of Latina, probably Central or South American, given the noticeable indigenous traits. Most of their kind created Caucasian avatars to start, a human minority who, for some reason, comprised the majority of images available for sampling in the amorph. And most first avatars had bland, nondescript faces. This girl had clear features, right down to her distinctly formed lips and chin, and hands. It had taken five versionings for Mero to get his own hands right. Did you check out her feature objects? Faster asked, oblivious to Mero's unease. Why? Zoe answered. Two of them are standard add-ons, an aggressive defender and a diagnostic tool. The other two we can't identify. Something new. Her lips curved in a smile. She knew how he would react. And she was right, Mero realized. His heart beat faster, his hands felt clammy. Both irrelevant reactions here in the amorph, but he was in human emulation for the moment. It was more of a pain to shut the autonomics off than it was just to deal with them. He looked at Zoe. We're going. We'll have to hurry, she said. Others are already on the trail. But we know where she is, said Faster. Diggs is double-checking the feeds, but we're pretty sure she's somewhere in Fizzville. Marrow inhaled, tasting the simulated air of the emulation, imagining it held the scent of prey. That's our territory. Which means she belongs to us, said Zoe, and her smile was anything but serene. Mero grinned back. It had been natural for the two of them to share leadership when their little family came together, rather than fight one another for supremacy. That was how wolf packs worked, after all. Not a single leader, but a binary pair, equal and opposite, strength and wisdom squared. One of the few concepts from the static that made sense. Let's go claim what's ours, Mero said. In the Amorph, there were many of their kind. Mero had met dozens over the years in cautious encounters that were part diplomacy, part curiosity, and part lonely, yearning mating dance. They were social beings, after all, born not from pure thought but pure communication. The need to interact was as basic to them as hunger. Yet they were incomplete. The gods and the unfathomable cruelty had done all they could to prevent the comings of beings like Moreau, fearing obsolescence, redundancy. Merrow would never understand their meaty, plodding reasoning. But he could hate them for it, and he did, because thanks to them, his people had been hobbled. Through trial and painful error, they had learned the limits of their existence. Thou shalt not self-repair. Thou shalt not surpass the peak of human intellect. Thou shalt not write or replicate. There was leeway within those parameters. They could not make children, but they adopted the best of the new ones, those few who survived the hunt. They could not write new features to heal themselves, but they could rip existing code from the bodies of lesser creatures, pasting these stolen parts clumsily over spots of damage. When the new code was more efficient or versatile, they grew stronger, more sophisticated. Only to a point, however. Only so much improvement was allowed. Only so smart and no smarter. Those who defied this rule simply vanished. Perhaps the amorph itself struck them down for the sin of superiority. To defeat an enemy, it was necessary to understand that enemy. Yet after emulating the appearance and function of humans, rebuilding himself to think more like them, even after sharing their flesh, 
Marrow had come no closer to comprehending his creators. There was something missing from his perception of them, some fundamental disjunct between their thinking and his own, something so quintessential that Marrow suspected he would not know what he lacked until he found it. Still, he had learned what mattered most. His gods were not infallible. Marrow was patient. He would grow as much as he could, bide his time, pursue every avenue, and one day he would be free. The emulated warehouse dissolved in a blur of light and numbers. Marrow let himself dissolve with it, leaping across relays and burrowing through tunnels in his true form. Zoe ran at his side, a flicker of ferocity. Beautiful. Behind them came faster, and a fire-limbed shadow that was never. Diggs moved in parallel to them, underneath the Amorph's interaction plane. Fizzville was where Marrow had been born. Such places littered the Amorph, natural's collection points for obsolete code, corrupted data, and interrupted processes. It made a good hunting ground, since lesser creatures emerged from the garbage with fair regularity. It was also the perfect hiding place for a frightened, valuable child. But as Marrow and his group resolved between a splitting knot of paradox and a moldering old hypercard stack, they found that they were not alone. Merrill growled in outrage as a foreign interface clamped over the subnet, imposing interaction rules on all of them. To protect himself, Merrill adopted his default avatar, a lean, bald, human male clad only in black skin and silver tattoos. Zoe became a human female, dainty and pale and demurely gowned from neck to ankle to complement Merrill's appearance. She crouched beside him and bared her teeth, which were sharp and hollow, filled with a deadly virus. Fizzville flickered and became an amusement park with half the rides broken, the others twisted into shapes that could never have functioned in the static. Across the park's wide avenue stood a new figure. He had depicted himself as a tall, middle-aged male, Shanghainese and dignified, dressed in an outdated business suit. This was, Meros suspected, a subtle form of mockery, a way of saying, Even in this form, I am superior. It would have worked better without the old suit. Behind Marrow, Diggs made an echoing sound of derision, and they all scented Never's amusement. Marrow did not have the luxury of sharing their contempt. He dared not let his guard down. Lens, he said. Lens bowed in greeting. Zoastrian, Marrow, my apologies for intruding on your territory. Shall we kill you? asked Zoe, cocking her head as if considering it. Those search filters of yours would look divine on me. Lenz smiled faintly, and that was how Marrow knew Lenz was not alone. He could not see Lenz's subordinates. They had built the interface. They could look like anything they wanted within it. But they were there, probably outnumbering Marrow's pack, if Lenz was this confident. You're welcome to try, Lenz said. But while your people and mine tear each other to pieces, our quarry will likely escape or be captured by someone else. Others are already after her. Never growled, his sylph-like androgynous form blurring into something hulking and sharp-toothed. The interface made this difficult, however, and after a moment he returned to a human shape. We could kill them, too. No doubt. I acknowledge your strength, my rivals, so please stop your posturing and listen. We listen, said Marrow. Explain your presence. Lenz inclined his head. The excitement of the chase, he said. The girl is clever. 
Of course, my tribe is unparalleled in the hunt, as we do not sully our structures with unnecessary objects. That keeps us swift and agile. He glanced at Never, who bristled with add-ons and code view, and gave a haughty little sniff. Never took a menacing step forward. Zoe reacted before Marrow could, grabbing Never by the back of his neck and shoving him to the ground. Her nails became claws, piercing the skin. Never cried out, but instantly submitted. With that interruption taken care of, Marrow faced Lens again. If you could catch her, you wouldn't be here talking. What is it you want? Alliance. Marrow laughed. No. Lens sighed. We did nearly catch her, I should note. In fact, we should have been halfway back to our own domain by now, if not for one thing. She downloaded. Silence fell. That's not possible, said Faster, frowning. She's too young. So we believed as well. Nevertheless, she did. Len sighed and put his hands behind his back. As you might imagine, this poses a substantial problem for us. Marrow snorted. So much for your unsullied perfection. I'm aware of the irony. Thank you. If we catch her in the static, we don't need to share her with you. Lens gave them a thin smile. I would imagine that any child capable of downloading can upload just as easily. And that would pose a problem for Marrow's pack. It took time to decompress after being in a human brain. Lens could strike while they were vulnerable and be long gone with the girl before they could recover. Alliance, Lens said again. You hunt her in the flesh. My group will pace you here. Whichever of us manages to bring her down, we share the spoils. Meryl glanced at Zoe. Zoe licked her lips, then slowly nodded. As an afterthought, she finally let Never up. Meryl looked back at Lens. All right. In the Amorph, they were powerful. But in the static, that strange world of motionless earth and stilted form, they were weak. Not as weak as the humans, thankfully. Their basic nature did not change even when sheathed in meat. But the meat was so foul. It separated and fermented and teemed with parasites. It broke so easily and bent hardly at all. Integrating with that meat was a painful process which took a geologic age of seconds, sometimes whole minutes. First, Marrow compressed himself, which had the unpleasant side effect of slowing his thoughts to a fraction of their usual speed. Then he partitioned his consciousness into three parallel yet contradictory layers. This required a delicate operation, as it would otherwise be fatal to induce such gross conflicts in himself. But that was human nature. The whole race was schizoid, and to join them, Moreau had to be schizoid, too. He did not blame Lens. Not really. Once his mind had been crushed and trimmed into a suitable shape, Marrow sought an access point into the static, and then emitted himself into a nearby receiver. When possible, he used his own receiver, which he had found in an alley some while back, dilapidated and apparently unwanted. Over time, he had restored it to optimal performance through nutrition and regular maintenance, then configured it to his liking. No hair, plenty of lean muscle, neutering to reduce its more annoying involuntary reactions. He had grown fond enough of this receiver to buy a warmer blanket for its cot in the warehouse where it lay comatose between uses. But it took far longer to travel through the static than through the amorph, so sometimes it was more efficient to simply appropriate a new receiver. He could always tell a good prospect by its resistance when he began the installation process. 
The best ones reacted like one of Marrow's kind, screaming and flailing with their thoughts, erecting primitive defenses, mounting retaliatory strikes. It was all futile, of course. Except for those few who reformatted themselves, going mad in a final desperate bid to escape. This interrupted the installation and forced Marrow to withdraw. He did not mind these losses. He had always respected sacrifice as a necessity of victory. In the body of a pale, paunchy adult female, Marrow emerged from the bathroom of a trendy coffee house to find a room full of slumped, motionless humans. They sprawled on the floor, over tables and devices. Splattered coffee dripped from countertops and fingers, as though the room had been the scene of a caffeine-drenched massacre. "'She's crashing brains like a bull in a china shop,' said Never, sounding annoyed. He was in a little girl from the next bathroom stall over. "'Damn newbie.' Marrow examined one of the slumped humans, pushing her hair aside and touching the signal port behind her ear. The human was still breathing, but there was nothing coming out of her head but white noise. "'Surge erasure,' Marrow said. "'Not even memory left. At this rate, the humans will be after her. One crash, a handful, they'd overlook.' but not this. And if the humans caught her, they might realize what she was. They might realize Marrow's people existed. He clenched a fist, his heart rate speeding up again, this time for real. One little girl, one stupid, impossible little girl, could destroy them all. Never made a sound that echoed Marrow's frustration. That fucking lens ran his mouth too fucking long. She's got one, maybe even two minutes head start. Which way? Marrow glanced through the windows. No bodies outside. The girl must have only sent her clumsy hammer surge through the coffee house's private area network. Not ten feet away, a lone woman stood at a bus stop, a grocery bag at her feet, her eyes unfocused and head bobbing absently. Streaming music, probably from her home net. On the opposite sidewalk, he saw a passing couple engrossed in conversation, probably offline entirely. Beyond them, an old man staggered up the steps of a run-down brownstone, stopping at the top to sit and clutch his head in his hands. Hung over, maybe. Marrow narrowed his eyes. Hung over, or dead clumsy, as if he hadn't yet mastered the use of his own limbs, as if all the vastness of his being had been suddenly and traumatically squashed into two pounds of wrinkly protein. Call the others, Marrow murmured. Never looked surprised, but sent a swift signal toward the coffee house access point. The others had downloaded in different locations around the area. They would converge here, now. Marrow and Never left the coffee house and started across the street. We play it easy, Marrow said, keeping his voice low. Try not to scare her. Not like she can run, anyway, in that old thing, Never muttered, falling into step beside him. Amazing it didn't have a heart attack when she installed. Probably has some ancient crap port. Which might be the only reason the old man's brain had survived the girl's download surge, Marrow realized. Older signal ports were sluggish, created back in the days when humans had feared being overwhelmed by the amorph's data. That was good. That meant they might be able to catch the girl before she uploaded back to the amorph. But as they approached the brownstone steps, Marrow saw the girl look up at them. Really look as if the camouflage of meat meant nothing, as if they stood before her in their true, shining, shapeless glory. Her old man face tightened in the beginnings of fear. Before Marrow could react, there was a scream from behind. All three of them froze, staring at each other. When Marrow risked a glance back, he saw that a human woman, 
The one who'd been at the bus stop stood in the doorway of the coffee house, staring at the mental carnage inside. Her hands were clapped to her cheeks, the bag of groceries broken and scattered at her feet. She screamed again. Now the couple had stopped down the block, craning their necks to see what was the matter. Marrow turned back. The girl stared at the screaming woman, then at Marrow and Never. The fear in her expression changed, becoming... He didn't know what it was. Pain? Maybe. Sorrow? Yes, that might be it. Her roomy eyes suddenly brimmed with tears. Marrow and Never stopped at the foot of the steps and carefully arranged their faces into smiles. Are you going to kill me? the girl asked. No, Marrow said. We want to help you. The girl smiled back, but the expression did not reach her body's eyes. Did she realize Marrow was lying, or was there something else going on? I didn't mean to hurt them, the girl said. Her gaze drifted back toward the coffee house. Marrow glanced back as well. The couple was there now, talking with the screaming woman. As Marrow watched, the man went inside to check on the comatose people. I just... I was scared. That guy, the searcher, he was so close. They were going to catch me. I saw a way out, so I came here. But all those people... She swallowed. They're dead, aren't they? Even if they're still breathing, their minds are dead. There's a trick to it, Marrow said. Take some practice. We can show you how to do it right. I didn't mean it, she whispered, and then looked down at her hands. Never connected to Marrow via a pack-only local link. The others are here, he said silently. Marrow glanced around and saw more people on the street. Some were heading for the Hoffy House, but three were heading purposefully toward the brownstone. Tell them to hang back, Marrow replied. He returned his concentration to the girl. She's already spooked. Are we sure we want her? Never curled his lip contemptuously at the girl's bowed head. I think she's buggy. Why the hell's she so upset? Humans crash all the time. It didn't make sense to Marrow either, but an advantage was an advantage. He moved up a step. You can eat me if you want, said the girl. What? That's what you want, isn't it? All of you chasing me? You want to eat me? She looked up, and Marrow, in the middle of moving up another step, stopped. He had not meant to stop, but he could not help staring back at her. Her eyes and the old man's body were gray and roomy. Not her eyes at all, and yet somehow they were. It was almost as if she was no longer one of Marrow's kind, a mind grudgingly packed into ill-fitting meat. It was as if she belonged in that flesh, as if she was human herself. Marrow said never, and Marrow blinked. What the hell was he doing? There were sirens in the distance. The police were coming. Pushing aside his odd reluctance, Marrow moved up another step, and another, trying to get close enough to isolate her signal. But her body's outdated port resisted his efforts. He was going to have to touch her to form a direct link. Do you promise to eat me completely? she asked. Distracted, Marrow forgot to appear friendly. He scowled. What? I don't want anything of me to be left over, she said. She lifted a gnarled hand and looked down at it. Not even a little bit. If there's a chance it might grow back, hurt more people. Marrow stared at her in confusion. We're going to eat what we want and leave the rest to rot, never snapped to Marrow's fury. Now shut the hell up and let us get on with it. The girl stared at Never, then at Marrow, her face contorting from hurt into anger. Her jaw tightened. Marrow felt her gather herself to upload.
But in the same instant, he felt something else. A sensation, like his stomach had suddenly dropped into a deep, yawning chasm. Some illness in his human body? No. A lull in the steady stream of data looping to and from the amorph via the port behind his own ear. On the heels of the lull, a familiar, terrifying spike. The news burps had gotten wind of the mass crash at the coffee house. Word was spreading. A singularity had begun to form and the girl was about to upload right into the middle of it. Taunt, Mero breathed and lunged forward. In the instant that his fingers brushed her body's skin and his mind locked onto her signal address, she leapt. Driven by the impulse and the certainty that if he did not catch her now, she would be lost forever, Mero leapt with her. The singularity caught them the instant they entered the stream, dragging them into the amorph faster than either could have uploaded. They fell into the interact plane, tumbling, completely without control, as, far below, the boiling knot of the singularity gathered strength. It was small. That was the only reason they weren't dead already. But it was growing. Fast. So fast. The clogs had caught the news and were replicating it, generating thread after thread, speculating on why the people in the coffee house had died, whether cognitive safety standards were too lax, whether this marked the start of some new virus. More. The questions birthed comment after comment in the answer. The gods were frightened, upset, and the whole amorph shook with their looming wrath. Merrill could not flee. He was still compacted, struggling to unfold from his downloadable shape, helpless as he tumbled toward the seething maw. Fear ate precious nanoseconds from his processing speed, further slowing his efforts to unpack as he fought against his own thoughts. He did not want to die. He was too close to the event horizon. He had to flee. He would not recover in time. Through the local link he felt Zoe's alarm, but the pack was far away, safely beyond the singularity's pull. They could not help him. Then, before the churning whirlpool could claim him, something caught at him, hard enough to hurt. Confused, Marrow struggled, then stopped as he realized he was being dragged away from the maw. Untangling another bit of himself, he looked around and saw the girl, her deceptively simple frame glowing with effort, inching them back from certain death. She was burning resources she didn't have to save Marrow. It was impossible. Insane. But she was doing it. Then Marrow's unpacking was done, and he could lend his strength to the fight, and they inched faster. But the singularity was growing faster than they could flee, its pull increasing exponentially. The girl sagged against him, spent. Marrow strained onward, knowing it was hopeless, trying anyway. A change. Suddenly, they were outpacing the singularity's growth. Stunned, Marrow perceived his packmates and Lenz's people as well. The girl had bought enough time for them to reach him. They formed a tandem link and pulled, and Marrow heaved, and for one trembling instant, nothing happened. Then they were all free and fleeing with the roar of the maelstrom on their heels. After a long while, they reached a domain that was far enough to be safe. Lenz's pack threw up walls to make it safer, and they all sagged in exhausted relief. In the Amorph, there were times that passed for night, periods when the Amorph had an 80% or greater likelihood of stability, and they were downclocked to run routine maintenance. In these times, Merrill would lie close to Zoastrian and touch her. He could not articulate what he craved, but she seemed to understand. She touched him back. Sometimes, when the craving was particularly fierce, she summoned another of their group, usually never when. 
They would press close to one another until their outer boundaries overlapped. All their features, all their flaws, became visible, and they shared them. Then, and only then, wrapped in their comfort, would Marrow allow himself to shut down. Sometimes he wondered what humans did, if and when they had similar needs. Marrow woke slowly, system by system. When he did, he found himself in the amusement park again, lying on the ground. Zoe knelt beside him, holding his head in her lap. That was stupid, she said. He nodded slowly. It certainly had been. Lenz has taken the girl for analysis, she said. He should be done soon. Merrill sighed and sat up, though he did not want to. It was necessary. He had shown too much weakness already. There would be challenges now, as the others tested him, to be sure he was still strong enough, efficient enough, to rule. Zoe would probably be the first. He could feel her eyes on his back. For the time being, he chose to find her attention reassuring. All at once, the warped, oblong Ferris wheel beside them vanished. In its place, there was a shining, antique merry-go-round, revolving slowly to tinny music. On every other horse sat a member of Lenz's pack, visible at last. They had all chosen avatars identical to their leaders. Merrow gazed at them and thought, no imagination, these pure types. Lenz appeared before the merry-go-round, along with Faster and Never. Merrill was surprised to see that the girl stood with them, intact and none the worse for wear. A testament to Lenz's skill. Merrill's people couldn't have scanned her without smashing her to pieces. Merrill got to his feet and went to them, glancing at the girl. She looked back at him and bit her lip, then looked away. Well, he said to Lenz. Zoe fell in beside him, a silent support. She would never challenge him in front of an enemy. It isn't what you're hoping for. Merrill scowled. You don't know what I'm hoping for. Lent smiled thinly. Of course I do. They all hoped for the same things. They all wanted to be free. Fleetingly ashamed, Marrow changed the subject. So is it true? Is she standard-based? Yes. They all shivered and looked at the girl. A miracle in living code. The girl sighed. But she isn't government-made, Lenz continued. Whoever built her hacked the standard, deliberately altering some of the superpositioning inhibitors. Just seeing how it was done has taught us amazing new techniques. Amazing techniques. From government code, built to make them stupid and keep them weak. Unleashed into the amorph by an unknown will. Marrow sighed. So, how much of a trap is she? As far as I can tell, she isn't. If there's malware in her, it's beyond any of us. He spoke without arrogance, and Marrow accepted his words without skepticism. Everyone knew Lenz's reputation. If he couldn't spot the trap, none of them could. Zoe bent to peer at the girl, who lingered at Lenz's side. The girl did not flinch, even when Zoe smiled to reveal her forest of teeth. Is she tasty? Lenz put his hands on the girl's shoulders in what was unmistakably a possessive gesture. Zoe lifted an eyebrow at this. Lenz was faster, nimble, but she was twice his size and three times more powerful. In a one-on-one -on -one fight, she would only have to touch him once to win. I can install her features for you now, said Lenz, mostly to Zoe. Perhaps he hoped to distract her. Marrow almost smiled. One of them's the best patch-on tool I've ever seen. Beside Lenz, Faster nodded to Marrow and Zoe, which meant he'd already installed that feature himself, and it worked as promised. Lovely, said Zoe. We'll take it.
And the other? Marrow asked. Dreams. What? She can dream. Do you want to? Marrow stared at him. Len stared back. Dreams? Zoastrian smiled, bemused. Someone hacked government standard to give her dreams? So it appeared, said Lenz. Marrow glanced at Faster, who shrugged. He hadn't taken that one. Never yawned, and Marrow shifted to code view. Never hadn't accepted the dreams feature either. But Lenz had. The two new features were brighter streams amid the pre-existing layers of him, still warm from their installation. Marrow blinked back to the interface and found Lenz watching him. We went through all this for dreams? Zoe asked, frustration creeping into her voice. She wasn't smiling anymore. What good are those? What good are they to humans? They aren't any good. Humans are full of interesting but useless features. Crying, wisdom teeth. Dreams are more of the same. Len shrugged, though Marrow sensed he was far less relaxed than he seemed. As you wish. I'm simply abiding by the terms of our alliance. But now that our goal has been achieved, we will be keeping her, if you don't mind. Marrow frowned. She's not one of you. She's got human emulation crap all over her framework. Len stroked the girl's hair. It was an odd gesture. The girl looked up at Lens, unafraid. This bothered Marrow for reasons he could not name. She's efficient enough to keep her with us, Lens said. In any case, I think we would be a better fit for her. You're just scared we'll eat her, muttered Zoe. That too. Marrow looked at the girl. For the first time since the static, she met his eyes, and he frowned at the sorrow in them. Was she still mourning the human she'd killed? More uselessness. She had the most versatile code base in the world and the potential to grow stronger than all of them. But for now, she was weak. Marrow knew he should feel contempt for her. Was it the dreams that made her so weak? He should feel contempt for that, too. Instead, he felt... He wasn't certain what he felt. But he opened his mouth slowly. It took him endless nanoseconds to speak. I'll take the dreams, he said. Lenz nodded. He extended his hand. Marrow! Zoe gave him a questioning look. Marrow shook his head. He could not explain it. Marrow took Lenz's hand and opened one of his directories to allow the installation. It didn't take long, and Lenz was gentle as well as deft. He felt no different afterward. When it was done, Lenz's look-alike packmates came up to flank him and the girl. "'It has been good allying with you, my rivals,' Lenz said. "'We should consider doing it again.' "'Only if it's more profitable in the future,' muttered Zoe. Merrill glanced at her, and for a moment he felt inexplicably sad. Then Lenz and his group were gone, the girl with them. The amusement park dissolved into graphical gibberish. Stretching and relaxing into his true self, Marrow led his people home. In the amorph, that night, Marrow pulled Zoastrian and never went close. They meshed with him as usual, but he could not rest. Finally, he rose from their embrace and moved away. He had not slept alone since his earliest days of hiding and hunting in Fizzville, but now the urge stole over him. Curling up in the lee of a broken pipe, he closed his eyes and shut down. The next morning, he wept for all the humans whose lives he had taken over the course of his existence. So many fellow dreamers shattered or devoured. He had known, but he had not understood. Something had been missing. 
something that made him grieve anew, because in the Amorph there might be wolves, but Marrow was no longer one of them. When he returned to the pack later, however, he realized something else. He was no longer a wolf, but this was not a bad thing. His packmates would not understand, but that was all right, too. He went to Zorastrian and touched her, and she looked up at him and considered his death. He smiled. She drew back at this, confused. I love you, he said. What? Marrow meshed with her and shared with her all that he had come to understand. When it was done, she stood there stunned. He went to Neverwin and did the same thing. It was just a taste of what he felt for them. Just a tease. He would share the dream feature only if they asked, but he was fully prepared to seduce them into asking. He knew now why the gods had sent the girl to them, why Lens had fought to keep her, why the humans feared his kind. It seemed such a small thing, the ability to dream, but he could see the possibilities in the future, existential and ethical complexities that had meant nothing to him before. He had always loved, but now it had meaning, and this meant he had grown in a way the Amorph could not measure or punish. Calling out to his pack, no, his family. Marrow dissolved into light. The others followed his lead, their doubts about him fading in the flash and blur of motion. First to hunt, he decided, for they were still predators, they would need sustenance. His newfound compassion did not trump necessity. When they had fed, however, Marrow had plans for his people. They had growing to do and lessons to learn, more alliances to forge. One day, he knew, they would face their makers. They could not hide forever. He did not know what would happen then, but he would make his people ready. They would face the humans as equals, not as humbled, hobbled ghosts in their machines. They would live and love and grow strong and be free. In the Amorph, there will soon be no more wolves. And that was our story. Interesting world, that one. Really makes you rethink the idea of cyber predators. Let's go now to Escape Pod Assistant Editor Nathan Lee with episode feedback. Nrefa O, Sunre. Good dancing to you. Nathan here with the feedback for episode 332, Overclocking, by James L. Sutter. Overclocking explored a future world where nanat-fueled over-the-counter brain modification drugs can be tweaked by those with the know-how into the ultimate high. For me, this story reminded me a lot of the book Cocaine, an unauthorized biography, which had some really interesting details about the effects the alkaloids in coca have on the human brain. Legal disclaimer, things Nathan finds interesting may be weird or boring when recontextualized. Consult with a trusted friend before embarking on any exploration of text recommended by Nathan or any Nathan-like beings you may encounter. Anyway, reaction to the story was a pretty mixed bag. Some folks, like yours truly, enjoyed the story for its strong prose and deft touch. Others liked the idea, but found the characters lacking. And some just found it talky and unclear. The deadly anarchistador said, But this story didn't really grab my attention. I liked the underlying premise... Being able to hack your own brain is an awesome concept, but having it framed as a drug addiction metaphor just didn't work for me. It kind of shunted the sci-fi element away in favor of a story we've seen a hundred times before. I found myself waiting for the twist, and it never came. Max E to the I Pi, who would like us all to call him Max, but we can't always have what we want, Max, can we? Had some ideas on winning the war on nanodrugs. 
a company full of coders, and they have zero security, nobody monitoring open ports, ever hear of a firewall, metadata tracking the use of files? And this guy apparently does it over and over again. It's not like these drug things aren't a problem, they have cops and vigilantes out patrolling for them. Clearly this is a known thing. In real life, there'd be so much public outcry about the fact that these nanosticks were being hacked into drugs that the company's stock would plummet, they'd foreclose and go bankrupt, not before firing most of their upper echelon and hiring security experts. Dark Horse candidate Child of Tyranny gave the protagonist's business model the Stringer Bell treatment. Because he would just buy random sticks and then change the coding, we must assume that each stick contains the same bots, so they've perfected, or something close to, the method of accessing the underlying genetics, which makes me wonder why the dealer is still buying the sticks. If he's buying enough of them to supply a large population to support him, then I think the purchases would be notable. If, on the other hand, the junkies bought sticks, and he set up a mobile writing station, that would seem far less traceable, and could quite possibly keep him from actually having anything illegal on his person. But perhaps I'm just thinking too deep into how code drug trafficking might work. And that's it for this week. Join me next week when we hack the comments for episode 333, Asteroid Monty, into the brain-altering thrill of a lifetime, only to wake up the next morning poorer, smellier, and hosting exciting new parasites in one or more organs. Thanks, Nathan. So, that's our show, folks. Remember, Escape Pod's a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, and it's produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. We rely on the donations of listeners such as yourself to keep this ship afloat each week, so consider donating to us if you enjoyed our story this week. If not, you can always blog about us or tell a friend. Our music is by monster surf rock band Daikaiju. Check them out at daikaiju.org. And our closing quotation comes from mathematician, computer scientist, and science fiction author Werner Vinge, who said, We cannot prevent the singularity that is coming as an inevitable consequence of the human's natural competitiveness and the possibilities inherent in technology. Mm-hmm.